everybody, Mike here coming at you from uh, Flu Ravage Central Suburban Ohio. It is um Ohio has shown us her true colors. It was 60 degrees I don't know a couple of weeks ago and then it snowed in 2 days. I mean, we had a row of like 50 degree weather. I thought, okay, the Erie's we've made it through. We've survived the flu. We've made it through the first winter. We're all good, right? And Ohio's answer was no. No, there's more winter. And because of all the craziness, you will all be stricken with the flu. So forgive the phlegm on my end. Um, it's, it's just that that's how committed we are to getting this to you, that even in the midst of flu, the Vox podcast rolls on. I uh, want to remind you, we've launched a, a Revelation podcast for our Patreon supporters. Um, and so you can find out more about that on patreon.com. Um, and then, uh, type in Mike Erie or Vox podcast, and you can become a supporter that way, um, and have access to a number of things. But, um, our Facebook group is really, uh, one of the more fun, but we just launched a revelation podcast. If you're interested in that, uh, also, if you would consider, um, liking, um, and rating our, uh, podcast on iTunes, that would be amazing. And, uh, and then lastly, thanks for all the feedback you send in. Um, as I've apologized many times before, we have loads and loads. We're just backlogged, uh, on questions. And so we'll try to get to a couple today. Uh, but I, I want to start by, uh, just reading bits and pieces of an article that was uh, published in the Washington post, um, it was a columnist who argues that the title of the, um, it's on the opinion page or section. The title is, I would have aborted a fetus with Down syndrome. Women need that right. And so she says, uh, there's a new push in anti-abortion circles to pass state laws aimed at barring women from terminating their pregnancies after the fetus has been determined to have Down syndrome. These laws are unconstitutional, unenforceable, and wrong. Uh, she goes on to say, Ohio is actually one of the states that has just done this. Uh, this is a difficult subject to discuss because there are so many parents who have and cherish a child with Down syndrome. Many people with Down syndrome live happy and fulfilled lives. The new Gerber baby with Down syndrome is awfully cute. Thank you for that. I have two children. Uh, I was old enough when I became pregnant that it made sense to do testing for Down syndrome. Back then, it was amniocentesis performed after 15 weeks. Now, um, a different kind of sampling can provide conclusive determination as early as nine weeks. I can say without hesitation that, tragic as it would have felt and ghastly as a second trimester abortion would have been, I would have terminated those pregnancies had the testing come back positive. I would have grieved the loss and moved on. And I'm not alone. She says more than two thirds of American women choose abortion in such circumstance, uh, circumstances. Isn't that the point or at least inherent in the point of prenatal testing in the first place? Um, if you believe that abortion is equivalent to murder, the taking of a human life, then of course you would make a different choice. But that is not my belief. And the Supreme Court has affirmed my freedom to have that belief and to act accordingly. I respect and admire families that knowingly welcome a baby with Down syndrome into their lives. Certainly to be a parent is to take risks that accompany parenting. You love your child for who she is, not what you want her to be. But accepting that essential truth is different from compelling a woman to give birth to a child whose intellectual capacity will be impaired, whose life choices will be limited, and whose health may be compromised. 
Um, let's see. Most of this means limited capacity for independent living and financial security. Down syndrome is life altering for the entire family. I'm going to be blunt here. Uh, and I appreciate her bluntness. Th that is not the child I wanted. That is not the choice I would have made. You can call me selfish or worse, but I'm good. But I am in good company. The evidence is clear that most women confronted with the same same unhappy alternative would make the same decision. And it, isn't it interesting how she's already loaded that this is an unhappy alternative? Um, which brings us to the Supreme Court. North, North Dakota, Ohio, Indiana, Louisiana have passed legislation prohibiting doctors from performing abortions if the sole reason is because of the diagnosis of Down syndrome. Um, she argues later on in the article, these laws are flatly inconsistent with Roe v. Wade. Um, and it is a constitutional liberty of the woman to have some freedom to terminate her pregnancy. Um, uh, can a woman, can it be that women have more constitutional freedom to choose to terminate their pregnancies on a whim than for the reason that the fetus is down syndrome? Um, so, so her argument here is, well, listen, if, if you're going to, um, if you're going to make abortions illegal, um, in the particular case of something of having a child with down syndrome, then why would you keep them legal for just not wanting a baby? I mean, if you're going to restrict it in that very significant case, then why would you permit it in others that are less, less significant? She goes on to say, and uh, as to the question of enforceability, uh, who is going to police the decision-making? Doctors are now supposed to turn in their patients, patients whom they owe confidentiality for making a decision of which the state disapproves. Um, she goes on to say, uh, technological advances in prenatal testing pose difficult moral choices about what, if any, genetic anomaly or defect justifies abortion. Nearsightedness, being short, these, uh, these are creepy eugenic aspects of the new technology that call for vigorous public debate. But in the end, the Constitution mandates and a proper understanding of the rights of the individual against the state underscores that these excruciating choices be left to individual women, not to government officials who believe they know best. All right. So uh, needless to say, and, and you will not be shocked, that as the, um, the parent of a young man who has Down syndrome, um, we, who we found out ahead of time was, um, uh, had that diagnosis three months before he was born. We found that out who was offered, of course, the, um, uh, option to abort the child. Um, I, I think we have a bit of, uh, uh, some objections perhaps to this way of thinking. Um, first of all, the, there is certainly the legal argument that right now abortion on demand is the law of our land. Um, and I, I find it, um, just if you're speaking purely politically, that compelling women isn't probably the best way we need to go on any side of the issue. However, um, I am one of those silly people who think that human life has value inherently, uh, in, in, in its essence. In other words, um, th there's a way of seeing human life as in purely functional terms or seeing human life in essential terms. Um, and, and the difference is simply this. Uh, as I study uh, bioethics, there are tests. I mean, and I can list off examples of tests 
uh, where people have tried to quantify personhood. Um, and if, you know, it's a minimum rational ability, a minimum relational ability, you know, that you can, you can do it using brainwave tests and so on and so on and so on. So that if, if a person meets the bare minimum of functional requirements, that person is considered human, therefore considered worthy of value. Not, not, not human, I should say. Um, I don't think people would disagree with that, but in terms of a person, they would be considered a human person now with rights to life and rights to dignity and so on and so on and so on. Whereas for, for me, uh, I see human life um, not in functional terms, but in es essential terms, in essence, to to be human in uh, and to be a per human person in the scriptures is to be an image bearer of God, and uh, the idea that that because. Uh, a child may have limited cognitive, cognitive abilities or be a financial uh, drain on their family is reason enough to, um, to execute that child or to perform an abortion, however you want to say it. Um, I, I fundamentally stand against that because of prior theological commitments. Now, that doesn't arbitrate whether or not these laws like that Ohio has passed um, are laws that are constitutional or not, or enforceable or not. But uh, but I do find it interesting. There was an article uh, several oh man several months ago that that had said I, uh, Iceland was um, eliminating Down syndrome, and. Uh, and in actuality, that wasn't true at all. It's not like they had some sort of genetic fix for Down syndrome. What they were doing was simply eliminating uh, anybody who had Down syndrome. <laughs> and so you can eliminate Down syndrome simply by killing all the people who have it, or you can eliminate Down syndrome uh, perhaps with some genetic fix in the womb. But it, but it was fascinating. The, art, the article was trumpeting uh, that they're they're eradicating Down syndrome when in actuality, no one was was no one was encouraged to have children um, with Down syndrome even remotely. So there was another article in uh, the Washington Post uh, that had uh, uh, CBS News recently reported that Iceland was on the verge of eliminating Down syndrome. Unfortunately, there was no great medical breakthrough to report. Iceland, it turns out, is not eliminating Down syndrome. It's eliminating people with Down syndrome. The country's abortion rate for Down syndrome babies is close to 100%, the highest in the world. Denmark is close uh, at 98%. In the United States, it's 67%. Um, and so, so one of the things that's very interesting to me about this are uh, premises that are embedded in the argument itself. So, so you know, she already she already begs the question. This this woman here um, by saying, "Hey, faced with this unhappy alternative, um, either abort the child or have the burden of a child with Down syndrome." Um, uh, I mean, you've already loaded the question just by framing it in those terms. So, I want to want to explore just a couple of thoughts. Um, about why it is that a, a, a statement like this is significant. I'm, I so appreciate this woman's consistency in simply saying, this is not the child I want. Because um, ultimately that's, that's what it comes down to. I mean, you can dress it up any other way. Um, but, but ultimately she just said, yeah, this, that's not the child I wanted. That's not the future I wanted. And, and if I'm honest, when Justine and I found out that our child had Down syndrome, that isn't the family or the future we wanted either. Um, you know, our initial response was one of tears. And um, and it's fascinating because we'd actually, and I, we've told this story on the podcast before, but we'd actually held off having a third child because we were specifically afraid of having a child with Down syndrome. 
And so, so, okay, my wife is shaking her head. I was, I was specifically afraid of that. She was not. Um, but, but what, so when we received that diagnosis, it was kind of like, oh my goodness, of course. Um, but, but of course we were sad, uh, and upset about that. And people were sad and upset at our being sad and upset. So I can get, I, I totally understand in the moment what can feel like a life sentence, particularly with families that are already dealing with kids with special needs or, um, or whatever it is that else is going on in their family that, that may feel overwhelmed by the potential of having a child um, with uh, birth defects. I, I totally understand that. Um, so so I'm not poo-pooing in any way, shape, or form the people that are upset by this. We were upset by this too. But, but that upsetness was boundaried by a prior commitment to see human life, not in functional terms about how well it would go, but rather in essential terms, what is the essence of a human person? And for us, the essence of a human person uh, is to be an image bearer. Now, I'm not saying everyone has to see it that way. I'm just saying that's the prior commitment that, that my wife and I had had uh, that helped guided uh, our decision, of course, to, to bring that child uh, into the world. The issue, however, is this. That there have been instances in history where to some population or another, there has been a move to eradicate that population. So in the early 20th centuries, you have a movement called eugenics, which was a deliberate state-sponsored attempt to um, to sterilize uh, people with disabilities, um, to ensure their non-reproduction, um, and to uh, abort those fetuses that were demonstrably um, not as uh, functional as uh, typical fetuses were. Um, and, and there's a there's a big backstory and history to this that I don't know all about and don't have time to get into, but that was a real thing. That was a hundred years ago, and so whenever whenever I, I hear an argument made like this, that there's this defect that's out there and we should eradicate, we should have the right to eradicate that defect if we want to, I immediately go back to not only circumstances like that, or even obviously with the Jewish Holocaust, but even uh, more remotely, um, and I don't know if we've talked about this in the podcast yet, but, but uh, there was a practice, an ancient practice that I know I've talked about and studied a bit. Um, called the exposing of infants. And it was something that was done uh, by the Greeks, but it was codified into Roman law. And it gave the head of the household, the, the, the oldest male, the head of the household had the ability to turn his back on a new infant. And, um, and, and, and that infant then would be taken out of the household and, and it would be put at some place outside of the city, the village, whatever, and exposed and left there to die, exposed to the elements, exposed to the animals. Slave traders would come in and, and, and capture some of these kids to be sold into prostitution or raised as slaves and to be sold at a later date. I mean, it was a truly gruesome practice. So we have examples of, of, you know, like there's this letter written in 4 BC about a man just casually instructing his wife, hey, if it's a girl, go ahead and throw the girl out. Uh, if it's a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, just throw the, throw the girl out. Um, we have examples of um, one of the oldest 
uh, gynecological textbooks um, ever ever written, at least that that we have record of, um, gives clear steps for how, determining how uh, an infant worth rearing is discovered. And so, in you know, it's it's are all the uh, passages clear? Are there strong movements? Are all the limbs there? You know, so on and so on and so on. And the idea was there were infants that were worth rearing, and here's how you determine them, as opposed to infants that weren't worth rearing, and here's how you determine them. This was all part of a great project that was introduced into um, the wider world by a man named Alexander the Great, and it was the project to Hellenize <coughs> excuse me, the known world, which was just a fancy way of saying he wanted to turn the world Greek. And central uh, to Hellenism is the philosophy, it's a very humanistic philosophy, that Human persons are kind of the pinnacle of, of what it is to be true, good, and beautiful. And uh, the perfection of the human person was highly emphasized. And so a lot of the, the statues, the frescoes, the art from that time period uh, very much emphasizes <coughs> the, the perfection of the human body. We have records from that time that when the, hu- the perfection of the human body was emphasized to such a great degree... Then you have these practices of exposing infants. And, um, and so it could be just because of the gender. Girls were not always wanted. Or it could be because of any slight or small defect um, in the child. <coughs> Man, forgive me for coughing. But it's the flu, darn it. Um, and so what you have in, in the Hellenistic society back in the day is uh, you, we would have we have examples of circuses where um, some of these freaks would be, and they were called freaks. They would be put in circuses and, and provided for entertainment for the typical masses. Right? They would be um, they would be collected. Um, the slavers would come through and collect the infants, or so, so somehow they would survive. And you would have collections of them that would travel the world and provide, you know, entertainment midgets, um, uh, folks with physical defects and handicaps. Uh, all of these, all of these things would be put on display as entertainment um, for the masses. And so, so when when you have somebody in the 21st century saying, "Hey, <coughs> oh man, I'm so sorry," saying, "Hey, I'm glad that we have the ability." to test early and to not have to bring those people into the world. To me, that just harkens back to what's been true of human beings um, for thousands of years. Namely, that there there have always been um, targeted groups that have been sought to be eliminated and for the sake of whatever greater good there is. In this case, it's individual choice. It's not to be a burden on the family. But you can track the trajectories of these societies that do this, and they all end up in this horrific place. And so, so and she even says this. She even says, she even says, uh, technological advances in prenatal testing pose difficult moral choices about what, if any, genetic anomaly or defect justifies an abortion. And her argument is, yes, the Constitution guarantees my right, but a personal argument is simply, well, that's not the child I wanted. 
And I, and again, I'm thrilled that she's so honest, but think about the application of that rationale to, uh, in, in, in coordination with massive technological advances to now the kind of designer babies that, that are possible for us. And she even says, she even says nearsightedness being short, there are creepy eugenic aspects of new technology that call for vigorous public debate. But the fact that, that, that her, her card here, besides the constitution or the Roe v. Wade, uh, interpretation of it is that that's simply not the child she wants or the future she wants. And there has to be a crew of people on planet earth who simply, and, and without undue condemnation, without judgmental harshness, but who simply refuse to cater to that line of thinking. That that simply become a place where, listen, where we will say, I mean, and that's the problem I have with so much right to life rhetoric. You can say abortion's wrong, but until you actually put in place things to take care of uh, single teenage unwed moms, um, ways of dealing with socioeconomic realities uh, and access to birth control. I mean, until you've done some of the harder societal work, just announcing abortion's wrong doesn't do much. Well, similarly, we can simply sit and decry, well, yes, no one should ever just throw away a baby because they have Down syndrome, even though they may have a right to legally. Uh, but there has to be a place then where, where those people and the families that welcome them are put on display to demonstrate the beauty and the glorious reality of what it is and why they should be welcomed. See, the argument we would make is that, is that our family would be impoverished if Seth were not here. Like it, it wouldn't just be that he's a burden. No, no. It's actually that we would be vastly different people and not for the better if he were not in our family and that the human race would be vastly different if it were not for the inclusive programs like our elementary school chooses where, where Seth is around all kinds of people. He's in third grade. And that those people, of course, look at him funny and think, what in the world's going on with that guy? But because they are exposed to him early and often, and he has so many now typical friends, what will, what will happen to those kids in terms of their compassion for the other is absolutely magnificent. So first, I would argue we are made in the image of God, and therefore none of us have the right to determine when to welcome a human person into the world or not. Secondly, I would argue that that, that there is a steep slope, and I'm not a big fan of the slippery slope argument, but we've seen it with Alexander the Great. You've seen it with the Holocaust. You've seen it with eugenic programs, where once you begin to introduce the selective elimination of certain parts of the human population in whatever means and by whatever criteria, something fundamentally changes about your society. And so, and then thirdly, the church has to be, has to be a place where the, fo the folks with any sort of de developmental disability are welcomed, not just in a special service for them or in a special needs ministry, but in the freaking church 
One of the things I loved about a church called EV Free Fullerton that I, I served at for three years is that the sanctuary, when you would when you would speak on the weekends, the, the sanctuary was full of adults and kids and teenagers who had all sorts of developmental disabilities. They'd make weird sounds. They, they would air guitar. I mean, it was awesome. And that was beautiful. That was a testimony of, of what it is to be the community of God. And there have to be places where, where that kind of engagement is put on display. Not only that, I think that those of us who have children with Down syndrome, so we didn't choose it. Andy Mercedes chose it. Um, uh, the, both, both sets, both choices have to be, um, uh, put on display and given voice and platform. So, so that, and, and, and we did this right when, when we, um, when we gave birth to Seth, the first couple of years, there were a number, a number of people who like, we had a couple from South America who wanted to visit us because they were terrified of having a child with Down syndrome. And uh, so that so much so they wouldn't even have kids and they wanted to just be around Seth to see what it was like. We had uh, another beautiful family um, who'd already had a child with special needs say, hey, I think we're going to give our little girl up for adoption and we were going to be that adopt, uh, ad adopted parents. Um, and then they saw Seth and they saw what Seth did to our family and they chose to keep that child. I mean, th this, this is such an important part of the witness of the church these days, because the, the reason I don't want that baby, I don't want that future. That's not the child I want. That's not the future I want. It's just the, the expression of individual, um, consumeristic, you know, therapeutic, like, um, consumerism. If I, did I just make that redundant? I think I did. Um, it is absolutely the worst ethic to ever run a society on ever. And I'm not, I'm all for individual rights and I'm all for minimal government and I'm all for all of that. But there is a sense where issues like these have to be bounded by so much more than just personal preference. And so I proudly stand with communities that simply say, no, if, if the only reason you are aborting this fetus, uh, the only one. Now, again, socioeconomic concerns or whatever other health concerns, not speaking any of that, but the only one is, well, this just isn't the kid I want. Um, then, then I think I absolutely stand against that. I absolutely stand against it. Not just in a legal, like, uh, constitutional setting, because I'm no constitutional expert and Roe v. Wade seems settled, uh, at least for now. I stand against it as somebody not only uh, steeped in the biblical worldview, but also as somebody who who sits and has experienced the joy of what a child with Down syndrome brings and how immensely different and, and more difficult um, human life and society would be if those children and adults were absent from our world. And so to just read this, to think back to Alexander the Great's project, to think back to the eugenics projects, you know, I, I absolutely respect people who think this way. I just think their argument is totally fatal to a society. And if a society as a whole embraces that way of thinking, that literally it's the family I want, not the family I choose, that it's the child I want, um, or don't want versus, well, the designer child that I can create kind of in a lab, man, I just think we are, we are in such danger in so many other ways. So just a couple of thoughts as I saw this in March, uh, as many of you know, is, um, uh, world, what is it, Justy? Down syndrome day, on the 21st. Down syndrome day is, uh, the 21st of March, 321. 
Um, and uh, it, as this came out, um, it, it, it and I'm not trying to get into the bigger abortion discussion. I'm just uh, trying to get into the things that underpin an argument that simply says, uh, this is not the child I wanted. And I get that. That was not the child we wanted either, but it was for our best and it's for society's best. And there are too many goods attached to being a people who welcome all kinds um, uh, and uh, to being a church community that does so as well. Now, a couple of questions and then we'll kind of wrap it up. Um, Man, we have so many good questions. All right. Um, Hi. Uh, this questioner says, uh, I really enjoy listening to the podcast. Appreciate your engagement with hard questions. I'm currently in medical school. I love that. And I'm wondering about how theology deals with sickness and death. Most theologians that I hear talk about sickness, cancer, and infection. They relate those things as a result of the fall. That humans were designed to live without these things, but because our rebellion, because of our rebellion, they were introduced into the world as the natural result of our revolt. However, as I study the immune system, it seems to be incredibly adept at fighting infections and pathogens. Our bodies encounter millions of bacteria every day that should kill us, but because our immune systems are so advanced, they quickly and effectively disable most of the viruses, except the flu and bacteria that should do us great harm. If we were not intended for a world with disease and decay, why do our immune systems seem so perfectly designed to deal with exactly that disease and decay? Okay, first of all, this is this is one of the coolest questions I think I've ever read. And I, I would have utterly, utterly no idea about a definitive answer on this. Um, I, I, what a phenomenal question. I've never even thought of this. Uh, however, not knowing the answer will not stop me from offering opinions. So first answer is, man, I don't have the foggiest idea. Second answer is, all right, here's a couple of thoughts, and, and maybe these are good or bad. Certainly death was a result of the fall, but I don't know, I don't know that we can say bacteria was the result of the fall, or could human could humans bleed um, in the Garden of Eden? I mean, it seems like they should be able to, right? I mean, because I think God did design our bodies to operate in a created order, and that created order, for it to be a real thing, had to have potential, um, uh, to, uh, to be taken one way or the other. And what I mean by that is this, that, that the Bible describes creation as being good. It doesn't describe it as being perfect or being static. Um, I think that the picture that's painted in Genesis, quite honestly, is of human persons interacting, uh, interacting with creation, a creation loaded with lots of potential. And, and that potential was even loaded into the human person. In other words, what was it wasn't like God <coughs> created the world and it was this finished canvas. It was God kind of created the studio and God created the paint and God created the, the sticks and then said to the human persons, now take it somewhere, do something with it, paint with what I've given you. And in a world like that, if that's true, in a world like that, it wouldn't surprise me. It seems, it seems bacteria are necessary for uh, the functioning of ecosystems and on down the line. It wouldn't surprise me that we were designed exactly to take care of um, decay and disease. It seems from what little hints that we get 
that decay and death were not part of the original part of the original creation. I have no idea how that would work. Uh, would trees continue to populate forever and ever and ever until you just ran out of earth? I have no idea. I mean, practically you'd say, well, probably not. Probably trees died or, or we're going to. So I, I haven't the foggiest idea how it happens. I will say, however, that because it is so clearly the case that God designed human bodies to adapt. And I'm going to use the word evolve without trying to load it with massive implications, um, but to adapt to their environments. Uh, and not just human persons, obviously, all sorts of people, that it wouldn't surprise me that God adapted, that God created the human body to, um, even though disease, let's say, and death were not there, or decay were not there prior to the fall, it wouldn't surprise me that God would have made a human body that could adapt to the realities of those things, even if they had never been brought about. In other words, God created creation to be loaded with potential um, and to be taken somewhere. So I don't think I don't think it was all a finished product. I think that also means that um, that that there were microscopic organisms, of course, that were necessary for the flourishing of ecosystems that human that human bodies had to fight off or engage with. I don't know that the fall turned all of those things bad. I I, I would assume that in if we're going to have renewed bodies, there'll still be bacteria somewhere along the line. Um, you know, which raises all sorts of fascinating questions, and that's. Why I led with, well, I'm not sure because, you know, will, will we go to the bathroom, uh, with a resurrected body? I mean, is that something that happens? Do you, do we eat? Um, do we sleep? Do we drink? It, can we cut ourselves on rocks? It, can we, um, I mean, I have no idea. Absolutely no idea. So this is a phenomenal question. I just don't know that you have to say that bacteria and stuff for the result of the fall, and that's it. I mean, perhaps, perhaps that was that was all loaded into um, the, the human person and the way that our uh, species would evolve and adapt to the change the, to the to the things we did with creation. Uh, I think that God, it seems like God allowed for a great deal, a great wide continuum of interplay between humans and creation, and then creation back to humans. So, I don't know. A couple of thoughts. I would love your thoughts on that, if you would. Second question, uh, same individual. Did Jesus make sacrifices as a Jew living in Israel? If he was perfect, why would he need to? And if he didn't, why didn't the Pharisees lambast his seeming failure to follow the law? It seems the Gospels make almost no mention of anything regarding this issue in Jesus other than the crucifixion, while the Old Testament makes a pretty big deal of sacrifices. Okay, fantastic question. Love, 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 love how you're engaged in this stuff. A couple of thoughts. First, um, from all that we can tell... Jesus and his family were very Torah observant. When Jesus was eight years old, they take him to the t- eight years old, eight days old, they take him to the temple. Um, uh, or, or I don't know if they did it at the temple. It could have been at the synagogue, but he was circumcised. Um, they bring, <coughs> his parents brought sacrifices to the temple and we're told that they sacrificed birds, which um, meant they were relatively poor. Um, they went to the feast. There's this episode in Luke where, where Jesus is at uh, one of the feasts and his parents lose him, but they would have been there, um, uh, 
they would have been there obviously celebrating the the sacrifices and the offerings uh, attendant to that feast. You have Jesus very clearly paying the temple tax. Uh, He and Peter do that. Um, You have Jesus attending several festivals, uh, particularly in the book of John, it's highlighted where he's at Passover. He eats a Passover meal um, with his uh, disciples. The Last Supper is a Passover meal. And yes, he adapts it, but from all that we can tell, it was he was very orthodox in the way he observed those things. He was even baptized by John the Baptist. And remember, John the Baptist had this exact same question. Why would I, John, baptize you? And then Jesus says, so that righteousness may be fulfilled. And what I think that's getting at is um, the Messiah, first of all, would uphold the law. Jesus himself says, I've come to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. Secondly, the Messiah would be declared righteous. The Messiah would fulfill the law that the Jewish people themselves could not fulfill. And so it was very important that Jesus be seen as fulfilling the laws of righteousness. Absolutely. Um, And I think part of those laws was the sacrifice. Of course, he didn't need to sacrifice. Of course, he didn't need to be baptized, but he did it for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of his messianic and priestly role as the servant of Israel, as as the one who was going to... Because remember, Adam was called a son of God. Israel was called a son of God. Now the true son of God was going to come and fulfill the law where Adam and Israel had both failed. And so in that respect, Jesus had to be seen and not just seen. He was this, but he had to be seen as righteous. Absolutely. Now, where he ran into trouble, of course, was with the oral law of the Pharisees. And so they they accuse him all the time of, of, well, how come you didn't wash your hands and why are you eating with sinners? But those things weren't violations of the Old Testament law. Those were violations of the oral traditions that the Pharisees held to be as significant and authoritative as the written Torah. So, so that's where Jesus gets into trouble, but they never once accuse him of being a lawbreaker, uh, except in a couple of places where they hint at it out of Deuteronomy. And they, though, so they call, call him to, they accuse him to be a, a rebellious son. I think it was in, in uh, Deuteronomy in the twenties somewhere, um, where, um, uh, a rebellious son was to be put to death, and they called Jesus a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of sinners. Uh, I think that was an instance where they um, they called him uh, a lawbreaker. I think another instance was on the Sabbath. But again, I think those he was offending their regulations. So according to their law, he was a lawbreaker. But according to um, according to the law of God, the law of Moses, he was not a lawbreaker at all. So. I don't know if that helps or not. I have no idea if even this was clear. I'm tempted to re-record it, but the flu, I think, will diminish my ability to even hold this much thought together. So um, great questions. Hope this is helpful stuff. Again, thrilled to be a part of everything uh, that's going on in your world. Thank you for inviting us in. We bless you. Uh, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you. And in these days, may he give you peace. Thank you, my brothers and sisters. Until next time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Vox Podcast. Learn more about us at voxpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at the Vox Podcast. And now support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash voxpodcast.